Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we welcome our good friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, co-host of Two Gurus Talk Compliance, to join us. Matt takes a look at the Gino Francesco controversy. Jay opines on John Morant. Christy looks at the new UK law on fraud, and Tom Fox looks at the Ken Paxton impeachment. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another edition of Everything Compliance. We have a lineup today of Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen. Sitting is our special guest, Christy Grant Hart, and myself, Tom Fox. Matt, we're going to go more or less east to west, and we're going to start at least in the east. You wrote an incredible blog post, I guess, yesterday, uh, and I'm not quite sure how to introduce it, so I'm just going to say, tell us about it. Yeah, so this is disturbing news for any compliance officers who are fans of the field of behavioral ethics, which is the somewhat social sciences discipline of seeing how you could manipulate people to following more ethical behavior. Obviously, that is something compliance officers think a lot about. The big news is that one of the leading researchers in behavioral ethics, a woman at Harvard Business School named Francesca Gino, who has published extensive research on behavioral ethics, probably some of which compliance officers know about. You may have heard of Ms. Gino. You may have seen her speak. You may have read her books. She is currently suspended from Harvard amid allegations that she has fabricated her research for the better part of a decade, if not more. Words fail you for a moment when you think about that. She actually wrote a book in 2018 where the title was Why It Pays to Break the Rules in Life and Work Sometimes. And apparently the allegations are that she did just that and she is not doing too well at the moment. Here's what happened is that a group of other academics out there who work as team basically publishing, not counter research, but they look at research that has been published, trying to replicate those results or paying close scrutiny to what research these professors in the world have put out. They took a look at Professor Gino's research and found that her research did not add up. If you really want the nitty gritty details of exactly how they pieced all of this together, you could go to a website this academic outfit manages called coldata.org, I believe it is. And they basically found that in at least four papers that Ms. Gino has published over the last decade or so, her research seems to be fabricated. Not just that she did things wrong, their specific allegations are that she was fabricating data and then put it into her models to get results that looked better. They are very serious allegations. They, This group, they handed it off to Harvard Business School, which then conducted its own investigation. Harvard has not actually publicly commented about what Ms. Gino has done. But it is has said that she is suspended. Ms. Gino herself has not been commenting on this, but this is now in the Chronicle of Higher Education. It is in the Financial Times. It is probably in other places as well that this is really just a shocking set of allegations against Ms. Gino. We should note for the record that a lot of the papers in question 
were written by Ms. Gino and other co-authors, including Dan Arelli, who is well known for writing all sorts of books about, I think it's predictably irrational and whatnot. Nobody has said that those other co-authors ever engaged in any false research. And we don't know exactly what the final outcome of Harvard's investigation may or may not be. Perhaps Ms. Gino has some sort of plausible explanation, but the academics who analyzed her work on coldata.com make it look really like I'm hard pressed to see exactly how she would explain away the sort of statistical abnormalities that they have found. I'll give you a great example of what some of the research that has now been called into question. So a lot of you might have heard of this before, that in 2012, Ms. Gino, Danarelli, several other professors, they published a study that found if you put an ethics attestation at the beginning of an employee's form, as opposed to the end of the form, if you present it at the beginning of the form, those employees are going to be more likely to be honest and less likely to cheat under the thinking that this helps them to frame in their mind at the start of their activity, I should be honest. And now I've heard that for many years. I've seen it many times. None of that is true. That is one of the papers that A, has been retracted. It was retracted, I think, about 18 months ago. And B, is one of the papers that the coldata.com people have found to be false. It looks like Ms. Gino fabricated the actual results that she used to reach this conclusion. So what does this mean for compliance officers? I don't really know. There's a lot of buzz about it. A lot of people on LinkedIn who are astonished by it. It's awkward. Like I have met Miss Gino on at least one occasion. We live in the same town. I know other people who are good friends with her. I have no idea what may or may not come of all of this, but this is a big black eye in the field of behavioral ethics. And so you have to wonder, does any of this matter? I don't know. Intuitively, what they said about the ethics attestation at the beginning, that still feels right to me. But it's not data-driven like we assumed for the last decade that it was. Calls into question what else about the field of behavioral ethics do we assume is gospel, but in fact is just pap and not true. It speaks to a broader problem in academia of an inability to reproduce research results generally. In behavioral ethics, in other fields, deliberate fraud, just we don't know why we can't do it, doesn't make a difference. This is just something that is it's a struggle for academia, but I know compliance officers point to Ms. Gino's work and other behavioral analytics work a lot. And now at the moment, we don't know if it's true. And I'd like, I'll leave it right there for everybody else to comment, but it's just astonishing to see that this twists in what we think of for good ethics and compliance lore, we don't necessarily know that we can trust it right now. Matt, you raised several questions in your blog post on this story. But what is the compliance professional to to not make of this situation, but to do going forward? You make clear not abiding the research is not an option. We have to study the research and we have to take that into account in some way. But how do we as compliance professionals or even you as a journalist begin to feel like we can trust the research? It's a fair question. Savvy people who have written about academic research before will know that, like I said, this is a fundamental problem with academic research is that it's difficult to reproduce any results. But there are going to be cynics out there who would immediately say this proves behavioral, eth behavioral ethics bunk as a field. It proves that, see, academics are just, they're coming with a set political agenda anyways, and they'll cheat to be able to prove that their views are right. I think that's a lot of crap. And why would you bother as a compliance officer getting tied up in those little side holes of conversation? You can't not think about behavioral ethics if you're trying to build a compliance program. The alternative would be a very rigid controls-based compliance program that governs every minute aspect of employee behavior. I don't know necessarily that you could do that, but maybe you could. I think the bigger question is why on earth would you want to? Because that sounds like a really crappy place to work to me. We talk an awful lot about if 
you build a culture of trust, employees will work with you better and they will behave more ethically. And you would have to worry less about these exacting, exhaustive systems of internal control. We still have to get to that sort of ideal. Now, this is unfortunate that at least this one particular kingpin in behavioral ethics, maybe she was not as ethical as we had thought. There's still plenty of other behavioral ethics research out there that is worth considering. A lot of their conclusions, even if they aren't proven in data, they just feel right at an intuitive level. And I think compliance officers should just keep their eye on that ball. Christy, do you have a question or comment for Matt? Yeah, look, I think she was a keynote at the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics National Conference a few years ago. I yeah, she was right. I remember and I she was very compelling. So I this you're right. This is genuinely shocking. But if I'm a compliance officer, is there any harm in continuing to follow some of those, as you described, intuitive ways of behaving? Or do you shift your program because this may be fabricated? I don't think that I would, but no. I'm just curious about your ideas. I think you framed it exactly right, Christy. Are you going to shift your program just because of this? Or are you going to then assume, therefore, that it must be better to not have any ethics attestations in a form? Good luck trying to put that to the regulators at the Justice Department and try and explain that because we don't know this is true, we're not going to do it anymore. Like There's a lot of counterfactuals that would flow from, I'm just going to ignore behavioral ethics. A program that you would design that ignores it, like I said, seems like it's a terrible place to work. And B, I just don't see that it would be very productive. I don't think you need to change a lot. There might be people out there who challenge you on the prove it part. And if you're going to cite academic research, you'll have to think more carefully about that. But it doesn't get away from, Christy, like what you said, are you really going to shift your whole approach to ethics just because we're not sure how data-driven some of these conclusions are? There's still at the gut level, they still feel right. All right. Jay Rosen, what do you have for us? I've got some sports. Surprise. As the United States now grapples with the very American problem of gun violence, the issue of gun safety has been touched by the NBA through one of its brightest stars, Joe Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies, who was recently suspended for 25 games after recklessly waving a gun in a social media video, and this offense happened for the second time. If Morant doesn't appeal, this suspension will automatically disqualify him from all NBA honors next season due to the league's CBA and the new 65-game minimum rule, which comes after the star point guard missed out on all NBA this past season. It's not a guarantee that Morant will have made the All-NBA last season. NBA insider Brian Windhorst believes that the Grizzlies star would have certainly made one of the teams without incident. And according to Windhorst's estimate, Morant's two-gun incidents could cost him as much as $50 million between lost salary, bonus, and potential sponsorships. For years, the image-conscious NBA has endeavored to be seen as a progressive, particularly on the fraught subject of gun violence. Many coaches and stars like LeBron James and Stephon Carey have also spoken out about gun safety. In early March, the NBA suspended Morant for eight games after he live-streamed video on Instagram as he laughed and callously brandished a firearm in a nightclub near Denver after a game. Morant apologized and said he had checked himself into a health facility in Florida to better deal with stress. Then on May 13th, one of his friends streamed video of him waving a gun as he rode in a vehicle. The Grizzlies suspended him indefinitely, and Silver told ESPN he was shocked. With the first eight-game suspension not being enough to change behavior, the NBA is hoping that Morant will finally get back on track following a 25-game suspension. The potential for other young people to emulate his conduct is particularly concerning. This was said by Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA. He added that the length of the suspension, about a third of an NBA season, was meant to show that engaging in reckless and irresponsible behavior with guns will not be tolerated. The stance of the league has remained consistent since Silver first spoke out on Morant's actions. 
Tomiko Tremaglio, the executive director of the NBA Players Union, said in a statement last Friday that Moran has been sh- has shown remorse and that the punishment was, quote, excessive and inappropriate, unquote. She added that the union would explore all options and next steps, and the NBA said they had suspended Morant for conduct detrimental to the league. The NBA wants to ensure that they're holding the Grizzly star accountable for his actions, while at the same time making sure he's getting the support he needs to be the best representation of himself in the league. Tremaglio, the union's executive director, said last Friday that Moran's punishment was, quote, not fair and consistent with past discipline, unquote. And in addition to the 25-game suspension, Moran will have to meet certain unspecified conditions. And Silver said, formulate and fulfill a program that the league will directly address circumstances that led to this destructive behavior. To the kids who look up to me, I'm sorry for failing you as a model, he said. He promises to do better, and to all his sponsors, he's going to do a better representation of their brands, and to fans, he's going to make it up to them, he promises. Well, Moran, in his apology, asked for a chance to prove that he's a better man than he's been showing, but that may be difficult. I think that there's an opportunity to have a positive story come out of this for the league and Moran, but going to counseling and doing a mea culpa either once or twice, so far hasn't made a difference in his reputation or the seriousness of the charges in the NBA. Jay, this story, as you say, it's not new. This is the second suspension. And the first time this story happened, I was very irritated with Morant. But the second time, I'm really beginning to wonder, does he not wonder, how does he get the help he needs? Because at his salary level and his talent level and his visibility level, whatever you think of a gun nuts in America, he doesn't need to be carrying a gun. So it's not for personal protection. It's he's doing it for some other reason. And it strikes me as, is this is just a cry for help, almost like an alcoholic or a drug addict. If you have someone that is that this important, I guess you say in alcoholism, sober up till you're ready. Any, any, anything would give you a hint he's ready or how does Memphis begin to try to help him if that's possible? Yeah, it's just, what is he, Tom? Is he 23 years old? So again, think of somebody, think about where we were at 23 years old, where we were emotionally mature enough to handle situations like this. And it's very easy for the sponsors, for Nike and all those people to get up there and wave the flags and say, you need to be a better brand representative. But as you said, Tom, t- two of these incidences have happened very close together. And he really needs the support of the NBA. And that should not come via fines, but there needs to be another way to really support somebody. And I guess the other thing is, he's going to have to really make a strong effort to show that he wants to change. And right now, like you said, he's been crying out for help. It it takes a concerted effort between the league, between his representation, and between sponsors. I think if everybody comes together, the money is staggering amounts to any of us here. If we had those kind of salaries and just not only having those salaries, but looking at the penalties too. So I don't think the current path they're on is going to be producing success, but we shall see what happens. All right. Our special guest, Christy Grant Hart. What do you have for us, Christy? I wanted to talk about the new UK law because I love the UK. I lived there for nearly a decade and still have a lot of clients that are going to be dealing with this. But also, I think in light of the fact that we've seen so few DOJ prosecutions and really significant actions right now, that having a new law may actually be very beneficial to us when it comes into force. So this is a new law that is the failure to prevent fraud offense. And it follows the very popular UK model of the Bribery Act and also the failure to prevent tax evasion way of going about things. So it's going to be a strict liability offense that has a reasonable procedure. So specifically a reasonable fraud prevention procedure in place, otherwise known as a compliance program to you and me. 
And it's going to create essentially an exception. So yes, you have strict liability unless you have reasonable protections in place to prevent fraud. Um, so it covers both employees and it covers third-party agents, which is always a good thing for us. We love a good third-party agent <laughs> angle, right? Because so much of what we do involves that. The government's announcement for it, its fact sheet that it put out, talked about trying to change culture around companies and fraud, which I thought was actually very interesting. That was an angle that they took on it. Um, so happily for a lot of people, the law covers only what they call larger entities, which is really true. So they've got a two out of three test for that under their corporate law, which is if you have 250 or more employees and more than 36 million pounds in annual turnover globally, and or more than 18 million pounds in total assets, then you are caught by this law. So right now, when you're looking at penalties, they have specifically made them unlimited which I think is a pretty fascinating word that there is going to be no statute on that. It's going to be what the court thinks is appropriate and what the prosecutors come after you with. And one of the things people always ask is, are individuals in scope? And the government has said, no, individuals aren't in scope because if you commit fraud, you already can be prosecuted, right? Because you're a fraudster. But there won't be any penalty for failing to prevent fraud for individuals, which obviously is deviation from some of the other laws. And the fact sheet also says that the government will publish guidance before this comes out. This is always what compliance officers really look for is, please tell me what does what is in the Bribery Act and Adequate Procedures Defense, what does that look like? I imagine it will look very similar to the other types of reasonable procedure defenses, which is, have you done your risk assessment? Have you trained high-risk people? Have you remediated where you found issues? Do you have a whistleblower hotline, et cetera, et cetera? So expect that to be similar. Commentators expect this law to come into place at the end of 2024. So we have some time to think about it. But fraud is interesting to me because it's so broad ranging, whereas the failure to prevent tax evasion offense is very narrow, really, because it has to be a whole series of things, including usually professional services assisting a company in order to get to tax evasion. But fraud is an absolutely broad topic. And one of the things I think is going to be interesting, is it defrauding the public? Is it defrauding your customers? Is it defrauding your company? And it's really very broadly written in terms of what that looks like and who the UK government is trying to protect. I think there are questions, obviously, about prosecution, especially since the SFO has been challenged in its ability to really enforce the laws that uh, or successfully prosecute the laws that they've got that have this structure but it's interesting. And I think that new laws are always good for compliance officers, but it also gives us a, an expanded reach that I think typically this kind of fraud thing ends up in audit or ends up with the finance department taking over and not having this as part of what we typically do. But I think it can maybe allow us to be even more integrated and less siloed if this is done properly. So I think it's cool. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Christy? Probably just a comment. First, it's a shame that Jonathan Marks, our resident anti-fraud whiz, is not on. That Jonathan would have a field day with this. But I think one point that a lot of boards might want to think about is that the failure to prevent, like you prevent fraud not by catching a specific fraud and grabbing it. You prevent fraud by having an anti-fraud program that is there to do block and tackle for whatever sort of frauds somebody's trying to cook up. And Jonathan Marks and I, we were talking about this not long ago, but he really brought up the good point that the missing piece is how a board leans on management and the internal audit and compliance team to say, what are not just the fraud risks, but what are the monitoring systems you have in place what data are you tracking to spot those specific risks when suddenly they veer into the red and now it looks like we have a fraud to investigate? And he really talks a lot about fraud monitoring and your key monitoring indicators. And he even has a wonderful phrase that when you do this right, then data analytics suddenly becomes the silent whistleblower. Because if you're pumping all the data in and you are monitoring the right things, the red flag will rise automatically. And that's the part that the boards don't seem to get. But I will be very curious to see how this unfolds and A, where the boards get it now and they are starting to implement not just 
you know, a fraud risk review, but an actual anti-fraud program. And how do they look at that? But then B, how do prosecutors in the fullness of time, how do they think about this as well? Are they looking at you stopping specific frauds or are they going to be looking at a broader anti-fraud program you had or you didn't have? It's going to be fascinating. I think it's a good idea, but it'll be curious to see how this unfolds in practice. Yeah, I love what you said about all of that. I think that it looks to me like it's going to be extraterritorial in the same way that the Bribery Act is. So fraud anywhere in the world, if you are are caught by it, or the Modern Slavery Act, those types of things. So I agree with you that this, that makes it bigger than a UK issue, right, as well. So the intention, I think, for all of these laws is to make this a corporate priority if you have business in the UK or do business in the UK. And that hopefully will rise it to a board level issue. But in terms of that prosecution, I have the exact same question. Are you looking for a massive fraud that then you jump on and say, okay, this is a big fraud. So we're going to go after this as opposed to the general failure to prevent fraud. What does that look like? I will. I remember so vividly we were at a European conference really closely after the bribery act had come out. I think David Green was then in charge of the SFO or whatever role he was in general counsel there. And he came out at the conference and said, obviously, if we've got bribery, then we don't have adequate procedures to prevent it, do we? And oh my God, the room. I was like, wow. So you never get into this defense, right? If you have had bribery, you clearly didn't have the new circle, right? You never have an adequate procedures defense. But yeah, I think that it's going to be really difficult for them to find this in the abstract, unless a giant fraud's already happened, and then you're dealing with what does that adequate procedure look like. So there's a lot of fuzziness, I think, around this one. Bribery is frankly easier to see. (laughs) It'll be interesting to find out how they deal with this. Christy, your comments there raise a question for me along the lines of the following. Under the Bribery Act, many U.S. companies, particularly energy companies, because they all had operations in the North Sea, fell under the jurisdiction of the Bribery Act. But U.S. energy companies that signed contracts with U.K. companies were required to comply with the Bribery Act's prescriptions, and the biggest area was around facilitation payments, so that a U.S. energy company based in Houston would have to have a carve-out for all employees working under a BP contract that they could not pay a, make a facilitation payment while working under that contract, and that would have to certify that in some way back to BP under the terms of the contract. Do you see those sorts of requirements now where a U.S. company who either does business in the United Kingdom or does business with a U.K. company subject to this new law in a jurisdiction outside the United Kingdom will have to make uh, some sort of contractual carve-outs? Interesting question. Facilitation payments are this weird gray legal area, right, where it's legal bribes and you have to deal with the UK differently. I don't think that there are any legal fraud that I'm aware of that would be this kind of carve out. However, given the the way that the law is likely to be written, we don't have the guidance yet. But assuming the as it's fleshed out, I would anticipate that because if you have business in the UK and you meet these thresholds, 250 employees, 36 million in turnover and or 18 million in assets, then fraud done elsewhere with the company, including by third party agents, could be prosecuted here. So I do think that it will have wide ranging implications, but because of the nature of fraud, I doubt that there will be carve outs or strange contract terms required other than this the same kind of thing that we see comply with all laws because there this is an anti-fraud law specifically. But really, if you're committing fraud, you're probably violating a whole host of other things too. So I'm not sure that it ends up standing on its own as something that's going to be a contractual issue for US companies. All right. I'm going to take the stage today to talk about one of my favorite people, the great state of Texas, great Attorney General Ken Paxton. And I'm not here to talk about his securities fraud, but rather his impeachment. And in May, the Texas House of Representatives voted out 19 articles of impeachment against Ken Paxton. And so it's gone to the Texas Senate, and we're going to have a trial. The first trial in since 1975's impeachment trial in the Texas Senate. There was one impeachment in 1918 and then a second in 1975. We don't get these very often in Texas, but then again, we don't get an attorney general 
quite as corrupt as Ken Paxton too often. Although just because you're an official of the state of Texas does not mean you should not make money. We all understand that here. What got Paxton into trouble was his relationship with a developer named Nate Paul. And he did a series of actions on behalf of Nate Paul. He intervened in criminal proceedings, he intervened in civil proceedings. And at the times of these interventions, he would get $25,000 campaign contributions. He also had his home remodeled by Nate Paul. And Mr. Paul has his own criminal problems and has been arrested by the federal authorities. But the relationship between Nate Paul and Ken Paxton was such that four of the top members of Attorney General Paxton's staff all political appointees selected by Paxton, all good Republicans, went to the FBI and brought up issues of obstruction of justice, harassment, abuse of process, and outright bribery. They also confronted the attorney general with their concerns directly. He, his response was to hire a five-year lawyer named Brandon Carmack or Kamek to investigate the claims. And where did he find lawyer Kamek? It was actually recommended to him by Nate Paul. And five-year lawyer Kamek investigated the claims and found that they were not valid. So Paxton, based upon his internal investigation, basically communicated that all four would be fired. It turned out three quit and one was fired. They subsequently filed a whistleblower claim in federal court. And the whistleblower claim was settled in mediation in April during the legislative session. Uh, here in Texas, we have a legislative section every session every two years for 140 days. And during the session for $3.3 million, I guess it was settled before the session. And the Speaker of the House of the Representatives was concerned at the settlement amount was according to the attorney general, to be funded by the people of the state of Texas. And so he began an investigation on his own. It's not clear to me who represented the attorney general at this mediation which settled the case. Typically, the attorney general has state lawyers represent them. And if state lawyers represent them, they generally have authority to settle on behalf of the state. So I'm a little not clear about that process. But the investigation that the Speaker of the House started led to uncovering a wide variety of conduct that led to the House of Representatives to vote articles of impeachment out against Ken Paxton. Now, Ken Paxton said it was liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats who did this. I want to disabuse anyone who thinks there's liberal Republicans in Texas. There are not. And there are very few liberal Democrats in Texas. Uh, nevertheless, this has cleaved the Republican Party because the magma hat wearing Donald Trump wing has risen to his defense and said that, once again, it was rhinos or other liberal Republicans who really did this. And there is a clear split right now between the governor of the state of Texas and the speaker of the Senate, or the lieutenant governor, rather, who is the speaker pro tem of the Senate, which is magnified by this impeachment trial. The impeachment trial is scheduled to start on September 5th. It's unclear how long it will last. For those lawyers on either this podcast or those listening, it will be some of the greatest theater ever because they have the four best trial lawyers in Texas paired up, two on the defense, two on the prosecution. I can't wait to see it. I will even shout out to a fraternity brother who is one of those four, Dan Cogdale. Unfortunately, he's defending Paxson, so can't shout out for that. But you go get him, Brother Cogdale. He defended the Branch Davidians at Waco. It's how long he's been doing this. So it's going to be great theater. It's going to be great lawyering. There is already millions of dollars of campaign contributions being made, both for the defense of Ken Paxton 
and to members of the Texas Senate who will vote on his impeachment. Not that we have any English people on this call, but we have to acknowledge the English angle, which of course is sex. And there's a sex angle in this because this, the wife of Ken Paxton is a senator in the great state of Texas. And part of the impeachment proceedings was that Paxton had an affair with a woman who he later hired. It's unclear whether his wife knew about this or not before it became public. Nevertheless, at least we've got some good English sex involved. Because his wife potentially has a conflict of interest, the rules, the Senate has ruled she cannot vote on his impeachment, although she can sit in on the proceedings. She may want to sit out on the days about the affair. So it's really as about as good as it gets. I can't wait for the trial. It's going to be a lot of fun. Matt, do you have anything commentary on the great state of Texas? I just have a question before I either go take some Advil or get high, which I usually have to do when listening to the nonsense going on in Texas. But Tom, would this better be treated as a serious crime in a Law & Order episode or a comedy in the Coen Brothers episode, a movie? Because clearly it needs some sort of entertainment value here. I just don't What are we supposed to do with this as a whole society? It can't just be left in the political realm. It has to go to the screen somehow. What would you recommend? The Coen Brothers would certainly be a great treatment for this, although Jimmy Breslin writing a screenplay based upon the gang that couldn't shoot straight would probably be the way I would go, but I just like novels better. Great point, though. Shout out to the Coen brothers. Please make a movie of this sordid tale. It's right up there with a Texas cheerleader mom. With that, ladies and gents, we are on to fan favorites, shout outs, and rants. We'll keep the same order. So, Matt, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Yeah, I have a rant against Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito, who has really outdone the wackadoo wing of the Supreme Court, <laughs> which is pretty much just him and Clarence Thomas at this point. But I had long thought that Clarence Thomas and the payoffs that he is getting from that billionaire supposed friend of his, Harlan Crow, that Clarence Thomas really took the cake with arrogance and tone deaf just disinterest in his role playing, trying to be a good political leader in this country. It's obvious Clarence Thomas couldn't give two craps about that. But Alito really has taken it now to a new level with these new allegations against him that he also is taking lush trips at the expense of billionaires who wind up doing business in front of the Supreme Court. Like Clearly, that is at the least an appearance of corruption. I think it flat out is just corruption. The only thing is that would Alito ever have voted against the interest of a billionaire anyways in the goodness of his heart if he hadn't been getting these sweetheart gifts? Maybe not because Alito seems like he's been a bootlicker for these moneyed interests for pretty much his whole career on the court. But now he has this bizarro defense that he was taking these private fishing trips to Alaska because it was not like the seat was because the seat was there on this private plane that this billionaire was offering me that has a value of a thousand but the seat would have gone unused so actually i didn't have to declare anything because the seat was empty and therefore what i guess it has no value so i'm totally going to try that the next time i'm on a plane and i see an empty seat in first class i'm just going to go and sit in it and try and tell the airlines that since it has no value you can't charge me an upcharge for sitting here or just maybe call the cops because i'm not supposed to do this at all but clearly sam alito thinks he can do whatever he wants this man is arrogance incarnate he really is just a walking argument for the fact that we do need term limits for supreme court justices you can keep them on the payroll if you want, but then ship them back off to be a district judge after 12 or 18 years and let them go back to the hoi polloi that they are supposed to be acting in the best interests of, which are otherwise known as the citizens and people of the U.S., not just the billionaires or not Sam Alito, who clearly seems to think the only person who matters in this country is Sam Alito. I've had enough of that guy. Jay Rosen. I don't know how I follow that, but this is a rant as well. New England Patriots cornerback Jack Jones, was, who was arrested last Friday after having two firearms and a large caliber magazine found in his luggage at Logan International Airport, is being labeled a hypocrite after an old 
tweet criticizing Memphis Grizzlies star Jay Morant resurfaced. Here's what the Patriots corner said in his Twitter post, which was sent out live on May 15th, shortly before Morant was seen holding a gun in an Instagram live video at Jay Morant. Dumb, you letting social media and your pride ruin your money. Put them guns down and run that money up. Make one of your homies sign up for security or concealed carry if you feel like you need that bad. But you, the breadwinner, you got to start acting like it. Not only did Jones directly tweet at Morant, but he also told him to put those guns down. Advice that rings a bit hollow now that the Patriots defenders arrest for unlawful possession of a firearm. Christy Grant Hart. I like your theme, Jay. Okay, so I'm ranting as well. This is fun. I, this week or last two weeks, the DOJ came out with a statement that they have finally started a database to track their corporate crime issues. And that currently that has 11 actions in it. So that's awesome. And that they were going to start in April of 2023 and maybe go back maybe. When I worked as a baby attorney at Gibson Dunn in 2007, they had Excel sheets that were tracking all of these things, right? This was not high expense, difficult things. It's an Excel sheet. So I swear, I cannot believe that they didn't have anything tracking this at all. That's crazy to me. And the fact that the Senate, I believe, asked them, three different senators or Congress people asked them to start it. They didn't think about this themselves. Frankly, I think they should call any of the major law firms and say, hey, can I get your Excel sheets so that I can put it into my database and make sure I have some information going forward? I just can't with that. Wow. These are high bars, guys. I'm going to be the contrarian. I'm going to have a shout out. And I'm going to shout out to John Assetti. John Assetti is a 93-year-old Kerrville resident who allowed me to tell his life story at the podcast, and it's the John Assetti story from last to first, and it's John's, literally his autobiography. John had an incredibly traumatic event as an eight-year-old in the third grade when in front of an entire class while reciting, he peed in his pants, and that stayed with him literally for all of his life. And for the first, his first professional career, he went into education with the sole goal that would never happen to another child. And he became a teacher's assistant, a teacher. He went to college. He went to the Air Force, went to college on the GI Bill, became a teacher. Then he went to administration and became a principal. Then he started a second career where he and his wife literally went across the globe on behalf of the United States as a retired couple, helping small communities set up schools. And he did that. Then he retired to Kerrville and started his third career as an author. And at age 92, he published his seventh book. If you haven't listened to the John Assetti story, I would urge you to do so. We've got comments from people from literally all over the world about how inspired they are by John, the first in his family to go to college, uh, all the way to where he is now. So I want to shout out to John Assetti for letting me tell his story in the podcast format. He's got an autobiography coming out. I'll be talking about that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a great session. I can't thank everyone enough for walking through the technical difficulties with me, and I look forward to our next time together. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won 
2005 Communicator Award, so I hope you will check out some of the award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data-Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever, From the Russian Invasion of Ukraine, and The Night Sky, Two Eclipses Coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022. And if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you will join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.